Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hail, fair traveller, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the bi-hemispherical podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, booking tickets for my first ever flight in Cambridge, UK. Oh, exciting. And me, Dan, (laughs) looking forward to warmer weather, but probably we'll be complaining about it in two months uh, in (laughs) Melbourne, Australia. We focus on forgotten fantasy, sci-fi and horror films because we love witches disguised as toothless little girls, flaming sword fights and masked villains who turn out to be related to you. Ah, Hello, Dan. Yeah, 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 of course. (laughs) Hello, Conrad. All tickets are booked. It's locked in. Yes, it's locked in. Yeah, I know. It's scary. Every now and again, I think about it and get a little bit of the sort of willies, but I'm determined to do it. Mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) So this is your very first like long haul flight? Or was this your very first flight? Have you been on a plane before? My very first. I have not. No, this is my first ever flight. Wow. Because my family is poor (laughs) and growing up we always used to go on holidays in the UK because yeah we weren't we weren't very well off I'm afraid and as an adult I've gone to Europe a lot but always via the train oh okay right but Europe Europe has like the cheap flights like Ryanair and stuff yeah I wouldn't be going on those (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean I I have been on them uh yes it's a bit ropey, and they do clap when you land, which I didn't experience uh, previously. Did they really? <laughs> yes. Because it's... Oh, I'll have to prepare for that. <laughs> oh, it's, I think it's only on... I don't know whether it's on other flights, but I've never experienced it in Australia and New Zealand. But, um, yeah, when we landed Ryanair, they clap because everyone's happy that no one's dead, I guess. So um... Yeah. <laughs> Pilot was competent. Well done. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, um, that's very exciting. Um, How long is the flight? So it's going to be about eight or nine hours, I think. Oh, yeah, that's a long-haul flight. Yeah, that's not not too bad. But when I went to book it, uh, British Airways was having a sale Uh and it was half price to get rid of the last few seats on the particular flight I was looking for. I couldn't believe it because I've been looking at the flights for ages and not quite pressing the buy button. But when I went in there, it was like, sale, Ah. prices slashed. So I actually bought first class tickets. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going in style for my first ever flight. I mean... It's going to be comfy. (laughs) It's your first flight. You're going to calm the nerves with your mm. with your what silk pajamas and your reclining yep. chair and your... champagne <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna get pissed down that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> right oh, be careful though the altitude does make you more drunk so 
Yes. It does, yes. And also weepy. I've heard of this too, that if you watch a sad movie, you could end up an emotional wreck. So you have to be very careful on your in-flight entertainment choices. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. With with flights, for me, long-haul flights, I, I just read. So I normally just bring a couple of books oh. and just read the entire time because I can't, for some reason, I, I my my ear pressure in my ears, it just doesn't agree. So I can't have headphones for long periods of time. It just, it makes my ears oh. hurt. Uh, so I just read Interesting. for hours. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, I might take a really good book with me then. That's a good idea. I might yeah. take my Kindle actually, because that's lighter. Yeah. 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 Mm. Good idea. I could do some research for a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think also I'm sure first class has Wi-Fi. Mm. Yes, it does. Because I've, I mean, I've never experienced Wi-Fi on, on a plane before, and also Australia, New Zealand, a little bit behind on the whole technology <laughs> on on the airlines. But um, you'll have that, so you can always, you know, just I will browse whatever browse the internet yeah it, it says free wi-fi but of course free in terms of you've already paid a thousand pounds wow anyway, yeah 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 so. yeah. <laughs> yeah but no i'm excited i'm looking forward to it most of all i'm looking forward to two weeks where i just switch off all of my work related apps oh, and forget bless. about it and just be a tourist yeah and have some fun so yeah i'm looking forward to it oh. a lot so good so good and i will be doing an episode without you yes it's your turn (laughs) (laughs) we'll see how that goes (laughs) yeah all right conrad anything in the mailbag today we do yes we had a lot of feedback on dreamcatcher including someone whose tag was insider 2000 who said i think about this movie often because i still don't know what the hell happened and whether or not the movie was real yeah that's what i was saying people who haven't read the book the movie doesn't make a lot of sense no apparently not just completely baffling so Mm. yes insider 2000 was just completely confused (laughs) as to whether that happened to them Yes. Our good friend Wicked Person got in touch to say, about half the time hearing one of these movies described or even named causes me to seek it out and watch it before or after the movie Oubliette episode. This is not one of those. It sounds like some of the industry's best utterly failing to work well together. Yeah. (laughs) That's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah. And regular listener John, he said... I have a funny feeling the oubliette may try to vacate this abomination from its <laughs> digestive system. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that idea. It's like the Sarlacc pit that just spits things out because they're too bad even for the oubliette. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And finally, Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hello, Serge. And he said, Dreamcatcher is the most interesting one-star film I've ever seen. <laughs> Four films crammed into one, the weirdly pervasive no-homo energy, the extraterrestrial autism deus ex machina, Morgan mm. Freeman's eyebrows. It's a terrible film, which should nevertheless be studied intently. Is there some sort of precedent where a film can stay in the movie oubliette 
and then be viewed only by inquiring minds under strict supervision so as to prevent its escape into the wider world. Mm. I think that'd be the fairest result. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, especially if you read the book. Uh, it's, uh, it's a baffling film. Yeah, just a, a fascinating exercise on how an adaptation can go wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> even the source material wasn't wasn't great mm. so you know <laughs> you don't yeah. have a start a good starting point anyway yeah as we say in the it industry about data crap in crap out <laughs> 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 anyway your correspondence was not crap so please do keep sending it to us we love hearing from you yes 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 but dan what are we going to be talking about this time and will it be crap oh well we will find out okay here i go Ah, I think I seem to be in a room full of strangely ornate, terrifying mirrors. Oh, no. Oh, I think there are creatures in them. Oh, what's that banging sound? Oh, it's coming from the really big mirror. Hang on, I think I've got the movie. I should get out of here. Yeah. Oh, I am the only devil here. Okay. <laughs> Lucky escape again. Yes, it's always the way. <laughs> so what have we got this time? So today we have, uh, from 2009, a fantasy adventure film called Solomon Kane. Ooh. So this was directed by uh, then Michael J. Bassett, but now just MJ Bassett. Uh, she's transgender. And it stars James Purefoy, Max von Sydow, uh, Rachel Herdwood, Pete, I can't pronounce his name, Postlethwaite, is that how you pronounce it? Postlethwaite, yeah. Postlethwaite? Postlethwaite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fun English name. Okay, okay. There's a lot of THs in there. <laughs> I won't say that uh, name again. Uh, and Alice Krieg and also Jason Fleming. Mm. And what happens in this movie? So this is uh, based on on a character by the great Robert E. Howard, uh, also regarded as the godfather of the sword and sorcery subgenre, creating the character Conan the Barbarian. Um, but this movie is set in the 1600s. Solomon Kane is a ruthless, bloodthirsty raider intent on wealth and plunder. However, one fateful incursion in North Africa brings upon the Devil's Reaper himself. Marking Solomon as a damned man. Fearing his condemnation to hell, he devotes his life to peace and faith. But the onslaught of an evil force takes over the land, slaughtering innocent people and turning those who remain into mindless slaves to the sinful, dark sorcerer Malachi. Mm. Solomon's hand is forced to once again wield the sword, but this time a quest for redemption and to rescue a young girl called Meredith. He'll face witches, ghouls, a terrifying fire demon, an unknown masked overlord, but the big question is... Will he get to wear a stylish hat and cape? <laughs> we will find out after the break. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> And 
we're back to talk about Solomon Kane, a Patreon's Choice episode this time. This one was nominated for us by Anthony. Yes, yes. Well done, Anthony. So, Dan, how are you on your sword and sorcery films? And had you seen this one before? I had seen this movie before, I think around about the same time it came out. But I don't think it came out in cinemas. I don't recall it coming out in cinemas here. I'm not huge on the sword and sorcery genre. I think I've seen Conan, the first one. The Schwarzenegger one? Yeah, the Schwarzenegger one. Um, But I haven't really seen that many sword and sorcery movies. I think I've seen Beastmasters, I think. That's one. Oh, wow. Um, But apart from that, yeah, I'm, I'm quite new to the genre. Yeah. I'm surprised you picked this one up and took a look at it. This one had completely passed me by. Right, I had yeah. no idea it existed. Yeah, I, I don't know. It kind of came out around the same time as all of these kind of action-adventure fantasy movies. So like Van Helsing and I guess like League of, of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm. It's sort of taking the old horror fantasy stories and making them more new and cgi and stylized fight scenes, that sort of thing. Uh, So I I kind of saw this lumped in with that trend of movies coming out. But I I kind of don't really remember this movie when I first watched it. Like, it (laughs) didn't seem to stick out as much. But watching it again, I was surprised. Yeah, I was surprised too, because I was immediately getting Season of the Witch flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little bit later, 2011, the Nicolas Cage movie we watched, which is a man weary of violence, yeah. finds himself on a rescue mission to save a young girl from the clutches of supernatural evil. Mm. And there's witches yeah. and there's a plague. But looking at the timings, obviously this film is 2009, Season of the Witch was 2011. If anything is ripping off anything else, it's probably Season of the Witch. Yeah. Or more accurately... It's just that there are a set of tropes in this genre, this sort of Mm, hero's mm. journey. Yeah. Possibly coming from Robert E. Howard, the pulp fiction writer who is held in very high regard and claimed to be sort of the father of the whole yes. sword and sorcery genre. Yeah, yeah. So this character of Solomon Cain, um, it's actually one of his earliest writings uh, or characters. It first appeared in 1928, published in the American fantasy and horror pulp fiction magazine Weird Tales. And the character appears in a story called Red Shadows. Mm-hmm. But the character never had an origin. So this movie is an origin story, really, of Solomon Cain. So in the uh, original written story, he'd already gone through the bad part of his life where he was, you know, slaughtering people and plundering. And he was now the Puritan, the redeemed man, you know, going around saving people. Whereas this movie shows his origin Mm. as this sort of ruthless killer. Yeah. So the producers wanted to do that because they had a whole franchise planned. And it's quite sad when you're watching all of the making of materials and listening to the commentaries because MJ Bassett and the actor James Purefoy, who's in the lead role, they're always talking excitedly and very definitively about what they're going to do in number two, which will be based on one of the books and set in Africa and bringing in one of the beloved sidekick characters and Mm. all this kind of thing. And of course, none of it ever happens. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame because I do feel like they've set up this quite 
interesting world. Mm. A little bit generic, I guess, but it is still quite exciting. I don't know. It, it, there are a lot of fantasy and, and lore elements that I, I quite liked in this movie. And and to think like movies like Underworld, which is, is it still going, Underworld? <laughs> is it still making Underworld movies? I don't know. Every now and again, I think it's dead <laughs> and that Kate Beckinsale is never going to strap on the rubber and start leaping around again. And then all of a sudden, her husband drags her out again. Yeah. I don't know. It's the same with the Resident Evil franchise. It's just never ending. I don't know who's <laughs> watching these movies. Like, their original vision for Solomon Kane was a trilogy at least and that would have been cool to see mm. a trilogy of this world and, and Solomon Kane but yeah I guess this movie flopped badly very badly and unfortunately it's all I think to do with copyright surrounding Robert E. Howard's work interesting because it's from so long ago and I'm not sure that everybody was particularly rigorous in how they applied copyright symbols and getting the everything registered in the right way so there are questions around who owns it the release of this film in the US was delayed for years Wow! Uh, due to, in MJ Bassett's own words on her blog at the time, stupid legal reasons, right. unquote. Oh, no. And it doesn't even seem to have charted when it finally limped out in 2012. I'm not sure how long it stayed in theatres or on how many screens. Uh-huh. On a 40 million budget, it garnered 20 million internationally. And the only Yeesh. story in terms of release I can tell you is how it was released here, which was in February 2010 when it placed seventh behind Avatar, The Princess and the Frog, The Lovely Bones, Valentine's Day, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. There's another one of those. (laughs) And The Wolfman, which was also a period, a universal horror type of thing. Not the 1600s, more the 1800s. And then it fell to number 14 the following week and sort of disappeared. So it got lost in the shuffle. I don't think it was marketed particularly well and it just Mm. didn't catch on fire. And if it wasn't released in the US, which is one of the biggest markets, it's not going to be remembered or have a chance to make its mark on the industry at all. Mm. So it's such a shame, really. It just appeared in the wake of Lord of the Rings when there were so many of these types of movies. Yeah. And vanished. Yeah. Yeah. But this movie does take a different route to well, a lot of those kind of action-adventure um, fantasy films. So it's not going for the rubber bodysuits and, like, breasts and ridiculous, like, slow-mo fighting or anything. Mm. It's actually a very serious movie. Uh, I guess it's taking notes from Lord of the Rings and, and a much more serious tone. There's no quips and stupid winks at the camera or, like, dumb comedic sidekicks or anything like that that you would expect in these type of movies it's very serious and it's heartbreaking acting by Mm. james purefoy it is it's gritty historical drama with fantasy elements Mm. rather than frivolous popcorn munching cgi fest i was shocked at how seriously it takes itself Mm. and particularly what happens to the characters mj says that when she was growing up she found all the fantasy films of her childhood which would have been the big boom in the 80s that i remember fondly Mm. she felt that they were silly they didn't take themselves seriously yes and so her direction to all of her actors was 
bring the character to life in this time period, in these circumstances, mm. and don't think about the genre at all. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with great British character actors like Pete Postlethwaite, a lovely surname, <laughs> <laughs> doing his sterling work, and James Purefoy as well, essaying this fascinating lead character whose whole arc is very much tied in with his faith, yeah. which is not something I tend to see foregrounded, mm. unless they're those faith-based movies that feel a bit yes. propagandistic. There is a strong religious theme in here, to the point where it's almost a little preachy. And I have an uneasy reaction to movies that are too religious. Mm. I don't mind religious themes or or like religious aspects of a movie. I love movies like Constantine and The Exorcist. They're very strong religious themes in those movies, but it's much more fantasy. And obviously there are huge fantasy elements in this movie too. There's demons and ghouls and witches and stuff, but it's always going back to Solomon's faith and believing that he's a sinner and he's damned to hell and he needs to redeem himself. So there's all of that as well. I don't know what your take on it was. Well, for me, it felt very much in keeping with the grand themes of the genre anyway, you know, that you always have a battle between good and evil. Yes. And instead of something like Clash of the Titans, where it's the Greek gods, yeah, it's Christian iconography, which makes it feel a little bit closer to home because, you know, I don't know how many people there are that are still believing in Zeus at this point, but, you know, Christianity is still very much a thing. Yeah. probably feels a bit closer to home. I don't know. I don't get the feeling watching, like, exorcist movies with, you know, exorcisms and priests and Bibles and, you know, the power of Christ compels you. I don't mind that. Mm. I'm, I'm fine with that because a demonic child... That's just pure horror fantasy for me. But when you've got a character that's pretty much Jesus, kind of, he gets crucified at one point. Yeah, he does get crucified. (laughs) (laughs) It just feels, Yeah. yeah, I don't know, too close to like... Would you like to talk about Jesus? And, and here's, here's a, a pamphlet. pamphlet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I have a pretty strong reaction to any movie that feels like it's indoctrinating me as well. I thought mm. this takes that iconography and just puts it into the space of the epic battle of good and evil that exists mm. in any sort of uh, fantasy hero's journey like this. Yeah. As well as that, it's a 90-minute movie with a hell of a lot of sword fighting in it. And I know. monsters in mirrors and things. So I didn't feel like it was taking it as seriously, perhaps. No, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure a devout Christian watching this movie isn't going to be like, yes, praise Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's relentless, some of the action sequences. Like, there is a lot of gore, Mm. which I was surprised by. And they kill a child, which was... Like, you know, that's the ultimate taboo. It really is. I was shocked. So apart from starting off the film with your main character being really awful, I mean, he shoots somebody in the back. He is nasty out for himself. Then he has this brush with the Reaper who tells him that his soul is damned. He's doomed to hell. So he tries to be good. Mm. And he goes out into the world after a brief stay at a monastery Mm -hmm. um, as a changed man and befriends this family of pilgrims, the Crowthorns, which is, I mean, just the ideal family. You've got Pete Postlethwaite, you've got Alice Krieg, just ideal together, (laughs) lovely uh, mum and dad. And you've got an older brother 
and you have Meredith and you have her younger brother, Samuel, who I guess is like 13, 14, something mm, like that. Mm, mm. And the villains come along and kill nearly all of them. Yeah. Including yeah. Samuel. And I was just thinking of that moment in the Michael Haneck movie, spoilers for funny games, uh-huh. where a child is killed and the characters actually, because they keep breaking the fourth wall, say, you can't kill the kid. You've ruined the suspense. You can't do that. Yeah. But I was just stunned because you'd spent so much time with them. It wasn't like... Krull, which is a movie we've done where the couple gets together and then the whole fortress is laid waste by the bad guys and the girl is draped over the back of a horse and ridden off for the hero to rescue later. Yeah, That happens in like the first 10 minutes. Mm. You've been with the Crowthorns for a while and because, as I said, they're not winking at the camera, they're treating this seriously, they're a really lovable, real family that you become invested in only to watch them go through heartache and slaughter, which... I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's a serious turn again. Like, it's taking no prisoners. It is following a lot of cliches that you expect in this type of movie. But at the same time, it's not. No, it's twisting them and raising the stakes. The only thing, as you said about the spiritual journey for Solomon, I didn't quite understand his decision-making process because he's gone through his three strikes, he's going to hell... And so William Crowthorn says to him, don't stray off the path. Yeah. And unwittingly seals his own doom because Solomon just doesn't do anything while the family's being killed, yeah. even though he could. He's quite handy with a sword. He could sort this out, but he does nothing mm. until he has this like, I know what you did last summer moment and throws his hands wide and looks up at the sky and what do you want from me? Yeah. But he's talking to God rather than a serial killer. And decides, oh, I'll go to hell anyway at that point, and then starts killing everybody and goes on this mad rampage to rescue Meredith. Mm. And I just thought, well, couldn't he have done that before? Shouldn't he be going to hell now? How does this work? I don't understand how this is working. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was pleading, you know, with the braiders to, you know, not kill the son but they do it they actually do do it i don't think he was expecting that because you know they're pure evil but they do it and so they've crossed the line at that point and so he's like oh well i guess i should kill again yeah my sort of (laughs) critique with the movie with his character arc though was you know you see him being the ruthless killer at the start and then he's damned by the devil's reaper and he jumps out the window into the water but suddenly he's now the devout Christian monastery monk guy. Mm. I don't know. There didn't seem to be a connection between the two. Like I didn't see a transition from him realizing, oh, I should probably not kill people anymore. I'm going to be a good person. Like it felt like two separate characters and no sort of connective tissue in between yeah maybe i don't know maybe this is his the reaper was his first experience of the supernatural and having been faced with the threat of eternal damnation and physical proof that this other world exists yeah it was just such a existential life-changing moment for him that the next time you see him he's in a monastery trying to be as good as he possibly can yeah yeah so maybe it's just the proof positive of the existence of the devil yeah made him think oh hang on (laughs) i'm gonna change my ways at this point this is not good (laughs) possibly possibly maybe we needed to see more of this sort of anguish or this fear of being taken to hell or 
or something. I'm not sure. Like, there didn't seem to be any sort of um, conflict, internal conflict. Maybe there is. I don't know. Yeah. I do think James Purefoy does a good job in those early scenes of looking like a haunted man. Uh, he really does look like he's been through it at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, he does. He does not keen on going back to his old ways at all. But then when he does go back to his old ways, he seems to be pretty damn good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like really, really good at slaughtering hundreds of people, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Puts on the hat and the cape and he's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do love the get up. Mm. It's superhero level. Like he's like 1600 superhero. Yeah. He's like the Zorro of wherever he is, England. Yeah. The look has been stolen prior to that by Van Helsing in 04. Right. That's the Hugh Jackman movie. So yeah. they actually stole the look of Solomon Kane for that movie. Interesting. And sort of made Solomon Kane as Van Helsing. Because this came out after Van Helsing, didn't it? Yeah, five years after. Yeah. So they sort of raided the source material. Yeah, that's unfortunate because it did feel like they were copying Hugh Jackman's character mm. when it's the other way around. Interesting. Yeah, and if you think James Purefoy looks very comfortable in a Puritan's hat and a black cloak and looks a bit like V for Vendetta, that's because he was V for Vendetta, which I did not realise. Right. He was cast in that lead role and was shooting that movie. Yeah. But he was let go after a couple of weeks. But there are still shots of him in the movie with Hugo Weaving's voice dubbed over them. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. It's fascinating stuff. But if you think James Purefoy looks pretty good in that hat and that cloak... There's a good reason for that. Right. He was well-practiced. <laughs> right, right, right. Interesting, when I was looking at his filmography, he's also in Sex Education, uh, that TV, <laughs> that Netflix show, as the dad of Otis. So yes. he's, he plays Remy Milburn, <laughs> yeah. which is so strange to think, because I'm currently watching the latest season. Oh, right. Uh, he's not in the latest season thus far. I mean, he's, he's in the previous seasons, but yeah. it's so strange that Otis's dad is Solomon Kane, cutting down hundreds of men with a sword. Well, that's the thing that's quite interesting about this, because so many of Robert E. Howard's sword and sorcery characters like Cole, the Conqueror, Conan, and even Red Sonia, which is coming back again under the uh, directing control of MJ Bassett, oddly enough. Oh. Yeah, she's going back to the well. So many of them I think of as being these massive muscle-bound mm. sort of characters, particularly in their 80s depictions with people like Arnold Schwarzenegger being cast in the role. Yes. It was yeah. always these massive physical things. And James Purefoy isn't that. I mean, he looks great. Mm. He clearly trained to look credible in this part. But he's not primarily that kind of actor, Yeah, I don't think. But I think that's really great. They didn't go in what MJ Bassett would, would say as the silly fantasy route. Mm. They could have got some ab-ridden, you know, like <laughs> muscle-bound, <laughs> ridiculous bodybuilder. But it would have made it silly. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm glad that they cast uh, James Purefoy. Yeah. 
the action scenes are astonishing. Yeah. I mean, the fight choreography is amazing. And all of it's shot in a particular way. MJ was really keen for them to be able to do everything in one continuous master shot, one take. Mm. Not film it all in bits and just do three moves and cut, 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 cut. She does cut in. Mm. when she needs to but she can hold off and just show him walking through a crowd of people and dispatching one after another after another which happens a few times yeah and Purefoy paid for it I think he had quite a few accidents right yeah 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 I did hear he did I think like 95% of the stunts in in horse riding himself as well so everything Mm. does look very credible and really well lit as well yeah like there's no just blur of like i don't know who's fighting who like you always seem to see james purefoy's face like it always seems like he's in the scene as opposed to oh that's a silhouette that could be anyone or like he's wearing a a mask or something ridiculous where you know it could be any stunt double but it feels like it's him the whole time yeah or it's edited by somebody with adhd just ramming the digital editing button every point one of a second yeah yeah can't even tell what's going on really you can just tell action is happening yeah There's no shaky cam in this movie. No. Thank God. No, the camera work is beautiful. The cinematography is by Dan Lauston, a cinematographer who works with Guillermo del Toro, most notably on things like Mimic Mm. and The Shape of Water. He's also working on John Wick movies. So, yeah, (laughs) he knows what he's doing. Yeah. It looks beautiful. It's also shot largely on location in the Czech Republic. Mm. So all of these vast snowy landscapes and castles is all real. It's such a breath of fresh air to see real landscapes uh, in a fantasy movie. Mm. I'm so used to now, like everything is CGI. Every tree and hill and mountain is CGI. Mm. Whereas this, they do integrate CGI quite seamlessly with real locations or real sets it's it's quite amazing this movie came out in 2009 yeah it's very much in the tradition of the lord of the rings trilogy where Mm. a lot of it was filmed in beautiful new zealand yes and set extensions and things added into landscapes and so on but most of it is just a great cinematographer and a great director and a fantastic location and it looks a lot more than it's 40 million dollars it does say. it does it looks really big it does i mean compare it to <laughs> season of the witch uh, oh, i mean <laughs> some of the location scenes are pretty good but like yeah any of the crowd battle scenes just awful everything looks cgi whereas the big battle scenes in this movie everyone's a real person Mm. it's amazing to watch the whole thing looks spectacular yeah some of the cgi i would say only at the start though i think the opening scene oh doesn't Mm. date very well the ship sailing across just looks like really bad green screen the aerial shot of the burning city looks terrible i didn't mind the last big creature the fire demon it does kind of look like a computer game but it's quite well done and same with the devil's reaper sword thing the flaming melty sword looks 
pretty good. Yeah, that looks pretty good. I wasn't too sold on the characters, the fully CG characters, like the things that are in the mirrors. I love the mirrors. Yeah. The set design on this. Ricky Ayres did the production design on this. Those mirrors look really great. Mm. But I think the things that are actually in the mirrors and the big Balroggy flamey thing at the end. Yeah, I just thought, okay, it's sort of early 2000s cgi creature animation so that the movements are a little bit robotic and weird and the resolution and detail isn't quite there i didn't mind them i didn't mind them oh, okay. i thought i it dates a little bit mm. but i don't think that they were actually that bad i think because the movie doesn't overly rely on cgi that's true it wasn't like dungeons and dragons oh, you God. know like where it's like oh <laughs> yes. my god like why did you try even try this like that's far too much cgi <laughs> that movie <laughs> yeah they definitely bit off more than they could chew but that was 2000 and this is 2009 so yeah i don't know i don't think it's quite wetter level what they achieved in terms yeah. of the lord yeah. of the rings it wasn't sure, quite sure, that sure. level but the budget was not the same i was impressed with some of the cgi especially knowing what they had to work with as well. So the flaming sword by the Devil's Reaper, he was just holding like a fluorescent tube. Yeah. Like a, a, <laughs> that, that's what they had to work with. And and the, the big Balrog fire demon, it looked like just a bunch of lights on a stick yeah. to get the lining right. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the Balrog, there is a lot of Lord of the Rings mm. in this. Mm. You know, he does look a bit Aragorn-y when he's he sitting in the corner of a tavern yeah. riding through the woods with black riders yeah. feels familiar and then you've got a balrog at the end i think you just can't avoid it mm. you're gonna bump into yeah the monolith that is the lord of the rings if you attempt this genre <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think so as well i did find generally the movie is a bit generic mm. it's quite predictable apart from maybe the twist with the brother so there's a head henchman sort of overlord overseeing people being turned into these um, slaves or whatever. And he's got this mask and he turns out to be the brother that Solomon thought he had accidentally pushed off a cliff. Mm. He's not dead though. He's in a coma or something. Yeah. But then his father gets the sorcerer to bring him back. But in doing so, he becomes this like horrific devil's henchman guy with a mask and and goes around you know taking over people yeah i don't get the sense he was a nice guy to begin with though because the first time we see him he's trying to rape somebody <laughs> yeah i know i know yeah <laughs> i mean there's that twist which i didn't see coming um but for the most part the movie is very predictable yeah i'm surprised you didn't see it coming because as soon as the character rode into the set with the mask on and it seemed to be particularly interested in crucifying Solomon Kane and staring at him and stuff. I did say out loud to myself, how long before we reveal that's the brother? All <laughs> oh, right, right. Oh, I didn't think that. I didn't think that. I picked that one out pretty quickly. The movie does have too many villains. I find. Yeah. Because the whole Malachi Jason Fleming thing, you're wasting Jason Fleming. He's a fine actor who mm. I really like, but he just shows up at the end as this villain. Right, yes. Who's barely been in it. Like if you compare it to something like Willow, you've seen Bav Morder all the way through and yes, she's got her evil henchman with a mask on. Mm, mm. But in this one, they're sort of one tier down. If you think of like the Star Wars thing, 
Jason Fleming isn't the emperor. Yeah. The overall master is the devil, right? Yeah. But you don't quite see, they're not going to characterize that. So I don't know. Jason Fleming feels wasted, but at the same time, they feel like there are too many villains in this hierarchy of villainy for any of them to really take prominence. It's just sort of yeah. generally bad people, most of them bald Czech stunt people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think Mel- the character of Malachi was. He should have had more scenes throughout the movie, and we we could have actually got to know him as a villain. We we just heard his name throughout the whole movie, and then it wasn't until the end that we see him. He doesn't do a lot either. No. So yeah, there isn't a huge antagonist in this movie to be afraid of. It just seems to be like you said, a whole bunch of bad people, and the the bad people never come back apart from his brother. But his brother doesn't have any lines. No. So it's not strong in terms of the villain department. It's not, no. I think if you'd dispense with Malachi and just had this evil person and then big reveal, it's the brother, final fight, yeah. gets destroyed in the mirror, you're sorted, really. I don't think you need Malachi. It just seems to be completely wasted. I don't know what he's doing there. Yeah, I guess it's just plot-wise with bringing the brother back, I guess. But I guess he didn't need to be there they could just say he brought him back and then you know he went away did his own thing i don't know yeah i think there's a problem in the film now it's time for random trivia so dan what fabulous nugget of trivia did you find in a parishioner's basement today yes uh not some ghouls uh so (laughs) The scene with Solomon finding his brother at the end, uh, at one point the brother catches fire, but apparently mm. the, the these are full body burn takes uh, and they would go for like two minutes. So this poor wow. stud actor is on fire for two whole minutes. <laughs> Well, they, they film it. It's, it's incredible stuff. It's amazing, yeah. And did a whole sword fight, fully choreographed yeah. sword fight. And I remember James Purefoy saying that at one point during the fight, he went right rather than left. He did the wrong thing. And all he saw was this flaming hand come out and just sort of sort of waggle his finger at him and then point at the right direction. <laughs> and then they just carried on going and did it again. That's amazing. This guy was hard as nails. And yet he didn't win the sort of stunt equivalent of the Oscar that year oh. for full body burn. It okay. went to somebody who apparently was just set on fire whilst sat in a chair. Oh, come on. Multitasking. It's rubbish. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, this guy was on fire sword fighting. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have another piece of trivia just quickly. Uh, in the battle scene at the start of the film with Solomon uh, just slaughtering all these men, uh, so to wind up the cast and just get the energy up, um, NJ Bassett um, was blaring Motorhead's The Ace of Spades on the uh, the PA loudspeakers just to get everyone yeah. with the sort of right energy level. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing because that thing, what's the beats per minute on that song? Is it like 160 or something? Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty energetic. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that's our trivia. That's our trivia. One thing that isn't a problem in the film is the way they treat Meredith. Yeah, they didn't go to cliche which was nice. They didn't go to cliche again. So yes, he's rescuing a woman in distress. 
the princess in the castle. You can't get more tropey than that. But there is absolutely no hint whatsoever of any kind of sexual interest between the two of them. I mean, I think she admires him. Yeah. And he feels protective of her. But there's no kissing. There's no hint of anything like that whatsoever between them yeah. throughout the whole movie. I think MJ, she does make it a point to have a significant age gap between Meredith and Solomon. So mm. as an audience member, you're never, ever thinking, hey, they're going to have a romantic connection. Because I of- don't know. Hollywood now, it's not big enough a difference that I, I wouldn't be surprised if right. it suddenly shoved his tongue down her throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, I think she was like 17 or 18 at the time of filming, but she looks right. like 15 in this movie. Yeah. Like she looks young. That would be highly inappropriate if that, very uncomfortable. If that happened. <laughs> so I, I, I'm really glad that they, they didn't go that direction. And MJ Bassett did strongly oppose the romantic direction that normally Hollywood does take. Yeah. So this is Rachel Hurdwood, who they wanted from the very beginning after seeing her in, I guess, Peter Pan. But she was resistant. They sent her the script and she didn't read it. Mm, Um, And it was only when her brother, Patrick Herdwood, was cast as Samuel. Ah. And he came home and said, hey, I've got this great part. And she said, oh, what is it? And she actually read it then. And then she was interested because she could see that it's not following all the usual tropes and had some really meaty stuff for her to do. Uh Sadly... A lot of what Meredith does is cut out of the movie. Apparently, she had a whole escape sequence. Oh, wow. Where she got away from the castle under her own steam and was captured and dragged back. But story-wise, it didn't progress anything. Right. So they cut it all out. Uh Because the film is tight. It's like 90 minutes. Yeah. I really miss that. Because there are so many bloated CGI-filled monstrosities now that are real chore to sit through. Yeah, uh, I mean, going back to talking about the cast, uh, Max von Sydow is in this movie. Mm. He always seems to turn up in these kind of fantasy <laughs> roles. Uh, and he's so perfect for them as well. Mm. But he, he is a bit underutilized in this film. Yeah, I think they had him for two days. Right. He shows up for the very powerful scene as the father who is going to give the kingdom to his rapey son, <laughs> even though young Solomon says... Dad, this guy's a dick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't do this. But no, he wants Solomon to be, I think he wants him to go to a monastery. And he says, screw that and walks out and his dad disinherits him. And then he comes back and finds his father chained up in a cellar. And dad just has enough time to do an exposition dump Yeah. before saying, you can't break the chains. They're magical or something. Just shoot me. It's another heart-wrenching scene that you just don't is, really yeah. expect from a film I like know, this. I'm being flippant, but it's yeah. actually pretty good because it is, it's Max it von Sydow. Also, I mean, Max von Sydow must have been destined to be in this film because he was in Conan the Barbarian in 1982. Right, uh, So yeah. he's already been in a, <laughs> in a Robert E. Howard adaptation. He was also in a film called Death Watch, not the Death Watch that... MJ Bassett directed Mm. but I don't know there's a little bit of a connection I I feel like he was on his (laughs) way to be in this movie 
I only know him from like The Exorcist and being Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon. And yet he's got this fantastic body of work. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. I just, I mean, I just watched Dune because I finished the book uh, and he's in that as oh, well, yeah. the 1984 version. He's great in that. Yeah. yeah he's, <laughs> I would love to cover a movie that he's in that's actually terrible. There's a movie called Druids in 2001. It's considered one of the worst <laughs> fantasy historical films ever. But he is in that and it's horrendous. I've seen bits of it not the whole thing has that got christophe lambert in it i think so yeah right yeah okay. his acting priceless oh it's just on another level of, of, <laughs> of horrible because <laughs> i did get a lot of highlander vibes from this movie as well there are a lot of uh, yeah. duels to the death and beheadings going yeah on there, this were, there were yeah. there were <laughs> uh one, one thing i was also quite impressed with this movie is the creature designs mm. so there, there are quite a few creatures i know you didn't like the mirror creatures i didn't think they were that bad but there's there's also ghouls so he goes to a church and the guy that's i don't know is he a priest yeah he was he's a priest the local vicar local vicar he shows him uh, he opens up a trap door and he shows him a whole bunch of ghouls uh i think that's what (laughs) mj bassett refers to them as are they just normal people turned into ghouls they're not the same people with the hand thing that the mask guy is turning right they're they're different no they're different i think they've also been cursed by this evil that's plaguing the land and so the local vicar just shoved all of his zombified parishioners into the basement and just keeps feeding them innocent people that come by (laughs) yeah yeah but they they kind of have this um vampire look to them like Mm. they they look very emaciated they've got sharp teeth i don't know they looked really cool uh and then you've got the the devil's reaper he's um, great sort of design like and it's all practical like i mm. think they wanted to have smoke or sort of particles floating but just the cgi at the time just wasn't quite good enough or they just couldn't figure it out the actor was like seven foot six or something just a huge, really tall guy yeah. ian white he's huge he's been the predator in the past as well ah, he's yes, enormous yes. that man yes <laughs> Uh, and, and other creatures, you've got a witch who is disguised as a child. Mm. It turns into this very stereotypical witch, like sort of Hansel and Gretel type witch. Which was, yeah. It's still cool. <laughs> it's, it's still cool to see. And then obviously the, the fire demon at the end that I guess you weren't so impressed with. I did really like the creature design in this movie. Yeah, it's all by Patrick Totopoulos, isn't it? Who I first came across him i think on stargate and independence day working on all those um, roland emmerich movies uh-huh. my favorite is the devil's reaper which again is just because it's entirely practical mm. on set but the costume design and the performance of the character he's really scary and also a sound design point what they do with his voice yeah because i was listening to it with surround sound yeah and that effect they do where you've got the person placed in the scene talking to this magical creature and then when the magical creature talks it comes out of all the speakers yeah, at once yeah 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 it's yeah. like this thing is so powerful its voice is coming from everywhere it, i thought it was really great the way that was executed yeah the director talks about it as well because uh, i think james purefoy is on the commentary he's asking oh who did the voice by the way and uh, mj bassett says 
everyone apparently so <laughs> she had a go at doing the voice as well like parts of the voice and just you know manipulated and pitched it down and that sort of thing yeah. but it's terrifying the voice i know that's what i was kind of hoping that they could stick with that level with the villainy because that made such an impact oh yeah mm. should we talk about the music yes it was good i guess i don't know it was quite <laughs> cliche to me like it was exactly what you expected in a fantasy sort of epic. I mean, it's for orchestra. It sounded good. I don't know whether it was memorable. Yeah. He is a good composer, Klaus Bedelt. I, I can't, I'm not, sure, I'm not mm. sure how to pronounce his last name. Is he one of Hans Zimmer's little sort of protégés? He is, yeah. So he's from the Media Ventures camp. Uh-huh. You see Hans Zimmer's name on a movie. Yeah. But actually there's like a sweatshop of composers yeah. toiling away. <laughs> churning out music for him so he did a lot of gladiator for example and uh-huh. the thin red line and the prince of egypt a lot of it is klaus badelt even though hans zimmer's name is all over it at least he got solo credit for the first pirates of the caribbean movie yeah i didn't realize everybody thinks it's hans zimmer it's not it's klaus badelt who composed all i of had that. no idea i i always assumed it was hans zimmer because all the other films were well, in the first trilogy at least it's hans mm-hmm. zimmer on the bill in terms of composing. No, it's not. It's, it was Klaus that came up with all of those themes. I think he's a really good composer once he gets away from the copy-paste creations. Yeah. I wasn't a fan of that sort of sound. It was so sort of generic after a while. I think here you get hints of him as a human being with a soul creating real music. Yeah. And I think he brings that to it in terms of the heartfelt seriousness of the stakes for the characters in certain scenes. Mm. I think he does a really good job. And then when he has to crash an anvil and hit all the big drums and just stab (laughs) away at the strings and blare horns, he can do that too. And I think he does a pretty good job of it. Yeah. I I, I just thought it was quite expected yeah no interesting instruments or or anything like that like you would expect with uh any american would use some weird instrument just because he can it was just very normal orchestral i don't know tonally it didn't really stand out i don't know i felt some of the scenes were overscored as well Mm -hmm. like just like too much music or just too on the nose. Right. We've got a dramatic scene. Let's have some dramatic music. It just kind of made it more cheesy. Okay. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse. I, I quite like this stuff. Yeah. It's not memorable. It's not. But there's some great melodies in there and some great execution of specific scenes. I'm hoping they're not the scenes that you think are cheesy, but they might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Hello, it's that special time of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite muddy, crucified parts of the film in a number of fire (laughs) demon crushing categories. Best quote. My favourite quote comes from a character that doesn't even have a name. He's just in the credits as Monk. Oh. And it's at the beginning of the movie when Solomon's in the monastery and he's looking for redemption. And the monk says, there are many paths to redemption, not all of them peaceful. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm. yes, yes. Just a hint that you might have to go on a murderous rampage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be redeemed, so that's okay. You'll be redeemed. Bless you, my son. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> uh, my favourite quote, it's probably from the trailer. 
But at one point, I think someone says something about the devil, and then Solomon says, I am the only devil here. Oh, yeah. That's from the evil Solomon at the beginning, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Purefoy growls that one at the camera. I know, I know. <laughs> Best hair or costume? As an obvious choice, it would be Solomon's outfit. I mean, it's so iconic. Yeah. He's all, all in black. Uh, he's got the cape. He's got a sort of red, sashy scarf tied around his waist and the pilgrim hat with the iconic buckle on the front. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that hat is called a capotan. I I don't know how to pronounce it. C-A-P-O-T-A-I-N. It's a tall, crowned, uh, narrow-brimmed hat with a kind of a flat top to it. But sort of contrary to popular belief, it doesn't have the buckle on it. Um, historically that was put on it in the 19th century or at least created in illustrations in the 19th century so originally it didn't have the buckle at all okay but it is so iconic though that buckle it is yeah but i've always wondered functionally what it was for i mean do you have to tighten up your i don't know (laughs) i guess not i guess not um, yeah. Eat too many cakes and you need to, you know, <laughs> unloosen the buckle on your hat. Yeah. <laughs> For those windy days, you know, tightening it up. You don't want to lose yeah. your hat. <laughs> Most naughty moment. We've said it many, many times on this podcast. It's the colour grading. Ah, uh, The yes. single colour washes whole scenes that are orange and whole scenes that are blue. And yeah, I just thought yeah. the colour grading really marked this out. But it is beautiful, though. Mm. Uh, my noughties thing I wanted to point out was yeah, sort of action movies with religion. So Constantine mm. from 2007, the movie Gabriel, yeah. the the movie Priest 2011, uh, or 2011, so a few a couple of years yeah. later, and Legion, another movie in two, 2000, oh, yeah, 2010. Yeah. So it is kind of. Uh, it's on it's on sort of the next decade but that sort of action movie religion is cool and let's kill people (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah favorite scene i really liked the ghoul scene where solomon gets pushed into the the basement of of the church and he has to fight off all these ghouls it's it's terrifying and it was all very carefully designed including the makeup on the ghouls themselves which when you saw them in full light on the set Uh they were very green apparently very blue green Right, And everybody looked at them and panicked, but NJ said, don't worry, once you see this colour-timed, you'll be able to see all of them and what they're doing, but it, they won't be blue and green wow. because we're going to bring down the colour saturation yeah. lighting. Yeah, so, they didn't yeah. look blue-green, they looked like black. Yeah. But you could see them. <laughs> you could see them, yeah, and then it's just the way they were painted so they could be picked up by the camera so that when you colour-time it, it doesn't all just disappear. That's amazing. It's great. Yeah, it's clever. Favourite scene for you? My favourite scene is Solomon being crucified. It's just such Ooh. a scene of high drama. Everything is at stake. He's completely given up on everything. He thinks Meredith is dead. Mm. He's got nothing to live for anymore. He's quite happy to just slip away on the cross. And then this wagon goes by with Meredith in it. And she screams out his name and... 
he cries out to God for the strength to tear himself <laughs> yes. off the cross and go after her. And Klaus Bedelt's music in the background is just pouring out all of this stringy desperation. And I, I love it. I absolutely yeah. love the operatic drama of the whole thing that it would fully commit to being that serious and heartfelt yeah it worked for me yeah. really worked most cliche moment there are so many cliches yeah. in this movie i have to say it the whole movie is is just a giant cliche or it's a faithful adaptation of of the source yeah. material that define the genre you don't know do you really it's tricky it's mm. like when john carter of mars came out everyone said well it's, this is just star wars and it's like well no hang on star wars is actually this <laughs> yeah so yeah I don't know. The one that I wrote down, uh, I, I wrote many down, but one I will mention here is uh, the secret passage into the castle, because yeah. <laughs> no self-respecting castle can exist without a secret passage that lets people sneak in for the daring rescue. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure about that, though, because it is a secret mm. passage, but then they pop out in the middle of the courtyard. Like, what What was the point of the <laughs> secret passage? Like, <laughs> it's like, obvious you've arrived. I, I just, yeah, I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not very clever, is it? <laughs> Uh, a cliche I wanted to point out is, is yeah, the lead henchman is either uh, has a hideous face or a mask or something, you know, horrifying. We saw it yeah. in, in Lady Hawk. Did we see it in that Lady Hawk? I'm not sure about that one now. It was one of those movies we watch, sort of set in medieval <laughs> times. Uh, I think we saw it in Krull. Did we see it in Krull? Mm. And then I think you mentioned yeah, Willow Krull, yeah. as well. Willow, definitely. Yeah. yeah, the big henchman, often no lines as well just mute yeah because usually it's an enormous stunt person yeah yeah some wrestler or something (laughs) best special effect well we've talked about it in the trivia it's the sword fight with the burning man so i'm talking about literal practical onset Mm -hmm, special effects mm -hmm. this stunt performer unfortunately i've i haven't written down his name but he he's on fire for two minute takes yeah whilst fighting the best sword fighting you've seen in movies Mm -hmm. it's a great achievement and it's just amazing to look at yeah yeah it's it's great scene and and wide shots as well no ridiculous Mm. like 100 cuts of close-ups where you don't know whose hand is whose Mm. no there's guy on fire Sword fighting with James Purefoy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Really good, really good. Favourite sound effect. So when the boy gets his throat slit, uh, they don't show it. They show the reactions of the other characters, but you hear it and it's... Oh, it gives me shivers. It's, it's, it's like a really long metal scrape sound with like some disgusting squelchy sounds as well. But it's not over the top, it's, it's, but it's still really grating in, in terms of like making that scene work. Yeah, it's not nice, is it? No, so many of those things, when people get stabbed, it's almost like they're made of an entire bucket of lasagna. Is that, how, did, how did they make that noise? Yeah. That's ridiculous. No, it's fairly underplayed. Mm. Apparently, originally in that scene, MJ had storyboarded it that Samuel's head would be cut off. Oh, wow. But everyone came to her and said, you can't do this. Yeah, <laughs> you really no. can't. I know you want to kill the kid, but you can't 
take the kid's head off no, in front of the audience. No. They're going to walk. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it didn't need it. It was grueling enough yeah, it as was. it was. Yeah. <laughs> My favourite was the witch rattling a baby's skull full of bones like it's some sort of macabre game of boggle. Yeah. It sounded almost like a, a, a vocalisation, like a raven's coring sound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really weird, creepy noise. I don't know what it was about, but yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, but I do love when filmmakers use a sound as sort of a menacing uh, sort of foreshadowing Mm. of something about to happen. Like, it makes it more terrifying. Yeah, it sets the tone for that whole encounter. Mm. I loved it. Mm. Mm. Most funniest moment! There was only one moment in the entire movie when I laughed, because it's such a grim, serious movie. Action-filled, gritty movie. It doesn't have a lot of laughs. It has one, which is when the merry band of men find Solomon Cain doing his Aragorn impression in the bar but instead of like Aragorn and just mysterious he's actually pissed yeah. like he's totally yeah, wasted. He wasted Yeah, and the Phil Winchester character says he can lead us and the other guy says where to another tavern <laughs> <laughs> which is great because like you say it's a funny quip yeah. but it's not winking at the camera or the audience yeah. I could believe that somebody would say that in that situation. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, funny for me, it's definitely unintentional. Uh, and, and maybe it's only funny for Australians, but it's the scene uh, where the guy is getting turned into um, one of Malachi's servants. So he, the, the masked rider has got his hand on his head and uh, he's turning him, his veins pop out, he develops like scarring on his head, he gets rotten teeth and jet black eyes, and then he utters these reassuring words, it's good. Um, And (laughs) I laugh, I mean, on one hand, how is that good? What, why would I want that in, in me? I would be running away as fast as I could. Um, but uh, another reason why it's funny is there is a an ad campaign in Australia for a deli meat company called Don. And uh, the tagline is, is Don, is good. And that's all I thought about <laughs> when he said those lines. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, I think that's just unfortunate yeah. culturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's our move, please. That's our move, please. <laughs> Hi, this is Tom Woodruff Jr., and you're uh, listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's time for our final verdicts. Should 2009 Solomon Kane be resurrected from the oubliette and be free to wear its pilgrim hat with a buckle and be applauded? <laughs> or should it be shot in the head and disappear into the devil's mirror, a.k.a. the Ooh. oubliette never to be seen again? Conrad, your first watch mm. of Solomon Kane. how does it fare? Well, I was pleasantly surprised because when, I'll be honest, when Anthony, our patron, recommended Uh this one and it came out on the draw, I thought, well, great to do a a fantasy movie, but Naughty's fantasy (laughs) with early CGI in the wake of Lord of the Rings Mm. 
It's not my favourite period, and certainly not after we did Season of the Witch with Nicolas Cage, which was just terrible. Yeah, yeah. But this is a really finely crafted movie. Granted, the story is uh, beat per beat sort of genre conventions all the way Mm. through, but that could be because the guy who inspired this, his work, Robert E. Howard, Mm. probably created the sword and sorcery genre. Exactly. But it also defies conventions. It's really serious, really grim, quite gritty. It has high stakes. It kills off beloved characters Mm. halfway through in ways that mean something Mm. and invest you in the characters. But at the same time, it's a lot of fun with really astonishing kick-ass action and stunts that defy belief. It's beautifully shot in great locations outdoors in the Czech Republic. It's got a what I think is a really good fully orchestral bit obvious, <laughs> but I love the score by Klaus Bedelt as well. It gives it all the feels and all the excitement. So yeah, Anthony has done exactly what we wanted to do on this podcast, which is find a gem that just got lost. It just didn't get released because of some stupid copyright issue. And I think people have missed out on a gem. And if they'd made it a trilogy, I think we would have had a really great body of work Mm. here. But sadly, it wasn't to be. But this little origin story exists. It's a fine piece of movie making. And uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it to people. I'd say, yeah, watch this. It's actually good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I originally watched this movie uh, when it came out, or around about the time it came out, and I don't think I really thought it was that great at the time. But watching again, it is really good, Mm -hmm. and mainly because of the attention to detail, the care in the filmmaking is quite surprising. Like, there is a lot of care in developing themes and character arts and the costuming and everything looks really lived in, like really lived in. Like every, no one looks clean in this movie at all. (laughs) Everyone's covered in mud. Uh, And that's great to see in, in a sort of fantasy adventure movie where you would normally see everyone wearing PVC and flipping and doing ridiculous like uh, like sword fighting with, with weapons that don't exist. Mm. Five-bladed things that you can't hold. Um, that's <laughs> like incredible. But like this doesn't do that. It does have a sense of realism, even though there are lots of fantasy elements. But I really like the creature designs. Yes, a little bit derivative, generic uh, in terms of, of the plot and the characters. But... Uh, I think it's a very well-made film, Mm. very well-made. And I think it's worth a watch for sure. It is. Well, I guess we should also check on our patrons' verdict. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Time for the patrons' verdict, please. Our patrons have decided to set the film free. Oh, yes. Agrees with us. Yeah, it's unanimous. Not a single vote cast against it. Eddie Coulter says, I say let Solomon Kane free to vanquish evil. Kane is a very underrated film that fell victim to a very less than stellar marketing campaign and scattershot theatrical release that saw it land with a thud in the US via VOD mm. three years after it played in theatres across Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did not get a chance. Uh, Chazilla says, great pick, Anthony. I always enjoy films with swordplay, sorcerers, demons, and Max von Sydow. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, he's in a lot of uh, that type of role, I have to say. Yeah, he's great at it, though. He is. <laughs> he is. Chisilla goes on to say, It's kind of ironic that he got crucified. Must have been too rainy and chilly in merry old England for him to wear a Speedo. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Poor James Purefoy. I think there would have been a lot of shrinkage. <laughs> mm, yes. So I think we're redeeming Solomon Kane and setting him free. <laughs> yes. Off we go, Solomon. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> ah. So, Conrad. Another one leaves the oubliette. What is up next in our next episode? So next time, Dan, we'll be doing two movies and they're called Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion Prequel to The Exorcist. (laughs) Okay. Because as you probably know, David Gordon Green's sequel to The Exorcist is coming out soon. So we thought we'd watch both of the prequels everyone's <laughs> forgotten about why not it's really weird they've all got the same cast pretty much and the same sets and the same setting but they're two completely different movies yes. somehow uh one is directed by rennie harlin and stars stellan skarsgård and isabella skorupko and james darcy and that's from 2004 and then a year later we got Uh, The version directed by Paul Schrader, which I think was the original version. And that stars Stellan Skarsgård and Gabriel Mann and Clara Bella. So a case of sort of release the Snyder Cut, release the Schrader movie instead of the Harlan movie. I don't know what happened. It's going to be fascinating to delve into it. And we will be joined by a guest. Well, I'm looking forward to doing two movies in an episode yeah and we're going to need reinforcements so we will be spiritually guided by our good friend Serge of Cold Crash Pictures yes and listeners if you want to keep up to date with our future episodes uh, get reminders you know when our episodes come out you can follow us on all our socials as Movie Oubliette and uh, email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com we always love hearing from you and we might even read out your comments on the podcast Mm -hmm. and if you want to support the show head on over to Patreon where for as little as a dollar you can get access to extended portions of the show and for five dollars you can vote on the final verdict and get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes and for ten dollars you can be an executive producer and get behind the scenes info hot off the press like Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton, Dr. Doggy, and Serge. Yes, yes, yes. Our, our last Minnesota, we covered The Hound of the Baskervilles, mm. that uh, Hammer Horror film. And uh, we did have a lot of extra bonus material from our episode with uh, Vincenzo Natale. We did lots of bonus exclusive interview extras there, including me having a chance to ask him about the experience of working with Anthony Hopkins on Westworld, Mm -hmm. which 
mm-hmm. it's really fun to talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> yes uh, we've got merchandise on Redbubble as well and a YouTube channel uh, so you can look at some live panels and uh, video essays that we did mm. check it out alright that's it for this episode listeners uh, stay tuned uh, next time goodbye bye we review the films others tend to forget come with us and open up the movie oubliette my god only you can help me now